This week is Parshas Kisisa, and we read about the most disturbing episode in the whole Torah. Chapter 32, verse 1. The nation is waiting for Moshe to descend from the mountain. He went up 40 days prior. He's coming down with the Torah. And the nation sees that Moshe is delaying. What's taking him so long? And they run to Aaron, and they say, Come make us a God who should go before us. The man Moshe, who took us out of the land of Egypt, he is gone. We don't know what happened to him, and we need a replacement. And they commit the grievous sin of the golden calf a mere 40 days after the sign of Revelation. How did this happen? How did a nation who recently experienced national prophecy, how did they descend to such a low nadir? So Rashi tells us that they made a miscalculation, and the Satan goaded them to sin. The nation saw that Moshe was delaying. He had told them, when he went up to the mountain, I'm going to be back in 40 days. And they started counting. And 40 days elapsed, and Moshe has not returned. And they start freaking out. And the truth is that the day that Moshe went up doesn't count because it wasn't a full day. But they didn't know that. So they were planning or waiting for Moshe a day before the 40 days had completed. Moreover, the day prior, the Satan came and confused the whole world. And he showed them darkness and confusion and obfuscation to indicate that for sure Moshe had died. And that's why so much confusion had sent into the world. So they had counted 40 days, but it was incomplete days. And they were confused by the Satan into thinking that Moshe had died and they were desperate to find a replacement. Further, Rashi tells us that the Satan showed them an image of Moshe in heaven being carried in a coffin as if he was dead. And that led to them wanting a replacement and making the golden calf. So what Rashi tells us here is that the essence of their mistake was that they were a bit impetuous. They were a bit too impatient. They were too eager to act. They were insufficiently circumspect and measured. And had they waited a few more hours, had Aaron's delay tactics worked, there never would have been this catastrophe. The danger would have been averted. And they would never have lost their crowns that they got at Sinai. They would have been this utopia. They... And according to one opinion, would not have actually gotten the tabernacle. The tabernacle was only there to fix the sin of the golden calf. And we read in our parsha that all the punishment that our people have experienced throughout our history, all that are little slivers of punishment for the sin of the golden calf. So all our people's suffering throughout our history would have been avoided had they waited a few more hours. But they didn't. They yielded. They sinned by not waiting, and they acted too soon, and catastrophe ensued. And my dear friend Rabbi Yosef Nachamavitz shared with me an excellent observation. This same pattern, or this same mistake, was present in the sin of Adam and Eve. The Talmud tells us, in the book of Sanhedrin, page 38b, that day six of creation, Friday of creation, was a very busy day. 
In the first hour, Adam's dust, or the dust that would comprise Adam, was gathered. In the second hour, a figure, that would be Adam, was fashioned. In the third hour, his limbs were stretched out. In the fourth hour, the soul was blown into him. In the fifth hour, he stood up on his legs. In the sixth hour, he named all the animals. In the seventh hour, Eve was paired with him. In the eighth hour, they went into bed. And two people went into bed and four people emerged. It was a really quick pregnancy. In the ninth hour, they were commanded not to eat from the tree of knowledge. In the tenth hour, they sinned. In the eleventh hour, they were judged. And in the twelfth hour, they were booted from the garden. This is a pretty eventful day by any standards. And this day, of course, was Friday. What would have happened had Adam and Eve just waited a few more hours and made it to Shabbos? Ain't that a tantalizing question? So the Kabbalists tell us that had Adam and Eve, had they refrained and just waited a couple more hours and gotten to Shabbos without sin, the world would have achieved its purpose. All the worlds in the lingo of the Kabbalists, all the worlds would have been perfected and the world would transition to the next epoch of history. Thus we could say that just as the sin of the golden calf was a failure of waiting a few more hours, it was acting too soon. The determining factor of the sin of Adam and Eve was the same thing. The pattern is true. Had they waited a few more hours, disaster would have been averted. And as we've mentioned in the past, the sin of the golden calf on a national level and the sin of Adam and Eve on an individual level are actually the same sin. We've talked about that at length in the past. Well, let's see if this pattern holds true. I want to look at the wars with Amalek and highlight four conflicts that have happened with Amalek. And let's see if this pattern holds true. So the first conflict with Amalek is found in Parshas Vayishlach in Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob has his nocturnal struggle with the angel of Esau. Jacob is alone, and he wrestles with a man that we're told is the angel of Esau, of course, the spiritual force behind Amalek. And the whole night they're struggling, and Jacob prevails, and Jacob wins. And how does he win? He doesn't win by overcoming the enemy. He wins by outlasting the enemy. Once daybreak hits, the angel says, uncle. The angel says, let me go. Jacob didn't defeat the angel. Jacob outlasted it. This is victory by attrition. Jacob allowed the other side to weaken. He waited and he won. Unlike Adam and Eve, unlike the Jewish people at the sin of the golden calf, Jacob had patience. Jacob waited and he was victorious. Well, what's the second conflict with Amalek? That is found at the end of Parshas Bishalach, Exodus chapter 17. 
Amalek ambushes the Jewish people, and they have a war in Rephidim. And Moshe tells Joshua, select for us men and go do war with Amalek tomorrow. This is an astonishing thing. The nation is ambushed. There's a surprise attack by Amalek. And the counterattack will wait till tomorrow. What does that mean? So, of course, we're trained to understand how the battle with Amalek is always a spiritual battle maybe on top of a physical battle as well. The way to victory is to delay until tomorrow. How did Joshua win this conflict with Amalek? By delaying until tomorrow. Like Jacob, and unlike Adam and Eve, and unlike the Jewish people with the sin of the golden calf, like Jacob, Joshua waited. He held on, and he won. And then we have Purim. Purim, of course, is a conflict with Amalek in the form of Haman, the heir of Amalek. Well, did they win that conflict or did they lose that conflict? Well, it depends. Initially, the beginning of the Purim story, the Jewish people lost. And that's why there was a decree against them to be destroyed. And subsequently, they won and they managed to overcome Haman and hang him on a tree. How so? So let's analyze the Purim story on a deeper level. The Talmud in the book of Megillah, of course the book that deals with the Purim story and the Purim festival, the Talmud tells us that the students asked the great sage, Rabbi Shemarichai, why did the Jews deserve to be destroyed during the generation the story of Purim. So he responded, well, you tell me. So they responded because they enjoyed from the feast of Achashverosh. The Jewish people actually deserved to be destroyed. But ultimately, things changed. It was flipped on its head. But initially, they deserved to be destroyed during the Purim story. And Why? Because they partook and enjoyed in the sin of the feast of Achashverosh. Well, of course, that raises some questions. Enjoying a feast is so bad? What's so bad about partaking in Achashverosh's party? So maybe you would have thought that the food wasn't kosher and all the wine was not kosher. But no, the Talmud says that the food was 100% kosher. So they went to a feast, and the feast had kosher food, and somehow the Talmud tells us that enjoying and partaking in this feast warranted that they get destroyed. What was so bad about it? So if we drill down to the essence of what happened here, we see something amazing. The Talmud in, again, the book of Megillah 11b tells us what the reason for Ahasuerus' celebration and feast and banquet was. The Talmud says that the prophet had declared that the exile would last 70 years and after 70 years, the nation would be redeemed. But it wasn't exactly clear when the 70 years started. 
Is it when the initial cadre of Jews were banished from the land? Is it when the temple was destroyed? When did the Babylonian exile, slated to be for 70 years, when did that start? It was a question. And Belshazzar, the king of Babylonia, he made a calculation and he determined that the 70 years had already elapsed without the Jewish people being redeemed and he made a lavish celebration to celebrate that the Jewish people are not going back to their homeland. That's the very dramatic feast, the one with the writing on the wall. But Belshazzar was wrong. He was off. He started the 70-year clock too early. Ahasuerus, the heir of this empire, he also made a calculation. And his banquet was his celebration of the fact that the 70 years had elapsed without the nation being redeemed. And therefore he's showcasing the temple vessels, and he wore the garment of the high priest as if mocking the nation that they won't get back to the temple, they won't be redeemed, they won't go back to the land, and they won't have the second temple being built. So what was the sin of the people when they attended Ahasuerus' feast? The sin was, not that the food was unkosher, the sin was that they had accepted his calculation. They resigned themselves to the fact that the prophecy was disproven and the Jewish people would not be redeemed. But the truth was that Ahasuerus, his calculation was also off. He too celebrated too early. He spiked the football too early. And therefore we see the pattern is still true. The sin of the beginning of the Purim story, the first conflict with Amalek in the book of Esther, was that they, the Jewish people, like the sinners of the golden calf, like Adam and Eve, they acted too early, they didn't wait, they pulled the trigger too fast, and that's where they faltered. The pattern endures. Well, what happened at the end of the Purim story? At the end of the Purim story, the nation ultimately triumphs over Amalek and Haman. And the paradigm shift is when Esther is coaxed by Mordechai to enter into the king's chamber uninvited. And that's when she arranges the parties with Haman, and we know how the story ends. And what happens there? So if you look at chapter 4, verse 16, Esther agrees, but she doesn't do it immediately. She tells Mordechai, go assemble all the Jews who live in Shushan, and fast on my behalf for three days and three nights. I'm also going to observe this fast, and then I'm going to go into the king. And indeed, three days later, Esther walks into Ahasuerus' chamber and sets off this domino effect of triumph over Amalek. Isn't it interesting that this triumph over Amalek is also with a delay, with waiting three days. So what do we have over here? We have the great conflicts of our history with the Satan, with Amalek, and all the wins, all the victories are when we delay and we allow the enemy to weaken, to lose steam. Jacob with his conflict over the angel of Esau, Joshua, 
waiting till tomorrow to lead the army over on Malek. Esther waiting three days before entering the king's chamber. That's how we win. And our losses are when we act too soon, too rashly, and don't allow things to settle. Adam and Eve didn't wait until Shabbos. The nation did not wait a couple hours until Moshe returned. And the nation acted too soon, attended Ahasuerus' banquet, and didn't wait for the 70 years to actually elapse. Now, just a side note over here. What is the difference between the conflict with Amalek and the conflict with the Satan? Of course, Adam and Eve, they did not have a Yetzirah, they did not have an evil inclination, but they had the Satan. And the people with the sin of the golden calf, they too had been transformed into becoming like Adam and Eve before their sin at Sinai. And therefore they didn't have a Yetzirah, and the only force that could compel them or encourage them or goad them to sin is the Satan. And therefore, the Satan is the conflict that we have at our zenith of holiness. That's the only challenge that we have left. The conflict that we have with Amalek is right before we achieve a certain zenith. Right before Jacob was rendered complete in the book of Genesis was his showdown with the angel. Right before the sign of revelation is when Joshua leads the nation into war with Amalek while Moshe is on top of the mountain with his hands in the air. Right before the second commonwealth and the second temple was rebuilt was the conflict with Amalek and Haman. The war with the Satan and the war with Amalek are on either side of the peak of our greatness. But the mechanics of how we engage with the enemy are the same. Wait. Let it lose steam. It is a foreboding enemy, but it's truly a paper tiger. Wait. Don't act. And you will win. And it turns out that the war with the Yetzirah is also the same. I want to read you a citation from my upcoming book, Upon a Ten-String Tarp. And like I mentioned earlier, all donations above $360 will get a signed copy once this book is published. Quote, A fourth suggestion for overcoming the Yetzirah is found in a strange-sounding episode in the Talmud. Rabbi Tzadok was propositioned by a Roman noblewoman. And he told her, My heart is weak. I don't have the stamina. Is there anything to eat? She responded that there was some non-kosher food available. He said, What difference does it make? Someone who does this immoral act eats this non-kosher food. She lit the oven and placed the non-kosher meat in it. And Rabbi Tzadok leapt into the fiery oven. Surprised, she asked him for an explanation for his behavior. He told her, someone who behaves like this gets cast into a furnace, into Gehenna, like this. She responded, had I known that you were so opposed to sin, I would not have propositioned you in the first place. The commentators grapple with the story. 
what is the meaning of Rabbi Tzadok's initial acquiescence to sin and to consume the non-kosher food? And what prompted his change of heart? Ben Yehoyada writes that this episode is teaching another way to avoid sinning. Rabbi Tzadok never actually entertained acceding to her seductions. Rather, he used a delay tactic to resist the sin. The Yetzirah jiggers the world around us and blurs the line between lust and logic. It gets a man's heart pulsating and creates the seemingly irresistible allure of sin. Its lust, however, is vulnerable. The artificial drive to sin begins with a fever pitch, but begins to dissipate immediately like a punctured balloon. If a person can delay the full force of its efforts for a little bit, cooler heads can prevail. Rabbi Tzadok understood that the impulse to sin will be quieted if a few minutes elapse. So he concocted an excuse to delay any decision until then. By doing that, the shelf life of the Yitzhak expired, and when a person is sobered up from its haze, its suggestions can be properly assessed and dismissed. Thus, after the delay, he made the correct decision that it's preferable to die in martyrdom than to capitulate, and he promptly climbed into the flames. End quote. We see from this that regardless what the enemy is, is it the Satan, is it Amalek, is it the Yetzirah, which, by the way, may be variants of the same thing, the solution seems to be the same. Wait, delay, don't act too quickly and you will win. Don't flinch. Wait for the enemy to flinch and you will be victorious. The Six-Day War is one of the greatest military triumphs of modern history. And this war was looming, was pending, was imminent. And Israel and their prime minister, Levi Ashkol, didn't act. And he was at the time lambasted for his indecision, for his reticence to act. But ultimately, once the conflict can be evaluated In retrospect, it turns out that that actually was the correct decision, wait it out, and only then make your move. What a nice theme we see over here. When you are dealing with a skilled and dangerous enemy, you don't need to win by fighting. You can allow the enemy to weaken on its own. In the words of Sun Tzu, the art of war, the supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. And when we do that, we win. And when we don't do that, we lose. And then there is the flip side. What happens when someone is not inspired to sin or to capitulate to the Satan, to a mullet, to the Yitzhah But their soul inspires them to do something positive. What then? So we read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 17, Ushmartem es hamatzos, you should guard the matzah, that it does not become chametz, it does not become leavened. And there's an amazing midrash here. I know I say often that there's an amazing midrash, but this one really is amazing. It says the midrash, 
don't read this verse, Ushmartem es hamatzos. You should guard the matzos, the unleavened bread. You should read it as follows. Ushmartem es hamitzvos. You should guard the mitzvos. Which, by the way, are spelled the same way in Hebrew. Matzos and mitzvos are spelled the same way. Says the Midrash. Of course, the verse is talking about matzah. Guard the matzah against becoming leavened. You have to work the matzah dough so it doesn't allow to become leavened and become chametz. But that is true with mitzvahs as well. When you are inspired to do a mitzvah, don't dilly-dally. Don't tarry. Don't wait around. When you have the positive inspiration, you act right away because the inspiration will dissipate. When there is a mitzvah opportunity, we have the opposite problem that we had with our war with Amalek and the Satan and the Yitzhahara. Entropy sets in. The mitzvah becomes stale. The matzah becomes chametz. The mitzvah is allowed to ferment and become leavened. The inspiration dissipates. And the longer you wait, the weaker it gets. And you are urged to concretize it with action. Don't wait. There's an amazing story in the Talmud, in the book of Nedarim, page 9b. It tells of Shimon the Righteous, who was the high priest, and he disapproved of people accepting the Nazir vow. And he said, whenever a Nazir, a Nazir is someone who accepts upon themselves a vow, typically for 30 days, to not come in contact with dead people, to not drink any wine, and to not cut their hair. And then at the end of those 30 days, they come to the temple, they bring sacrifices, and they actually shave off all their hair. And that is something that the Talmud already discourages. Don't do it. Don't accept this vow, so to speak, of abstinence. You shouldn't do it, but there is a halachic protocol for the Nazir. So Shimon the Righteous said, I never partook in the sacrifices of a Nazir. I don't approve of people becoming a Nazir, accepting this Nazir vow. But there was one exception. Once, a very handsome Nazir from the south, he had beautiful eyes and long flowing locks of hair. He came from the south, and he was a Nazir, and he came to shave his head, shave off all his hair. And I asked him, said Shimon the Righteous, why did you decide to destroy your beautiful hair? And the man responded, I was a shepherd, overseeing my father's flock, and once I was filling up water by the spring, and I saw my handsome reflection in the water, and my Yetzirah began to pulsate within me, and it sought to destroy my world. And I said to the Yetzirah, Wicked one, why are you taking pride in a world that's not yours, in a body that will eventually be consumed by worms and maggots? I hereby pledge that I will cut off my hair for the sake of heaven. And right then and there, I accept upon myself a vow of a Nazir, who after 30 days has to cut off all the hair. And here I am, cut off all my hair. Immediately concludes Shimon the Righteous, I stood up, I kissed him on his head, and I said to him, My son, I generally don't approve of people becoming a Nazir, but you're the exception. I hope there are more people who choose 
to become an Azir like you who choose to consecrate, so to speak, their hair and their gurloj to overcome the Yetzirah and not capitulate to sin. What an interesting story from the Talmud in the book of Nadarim, page 9b. But there's an obvious hole in the story. We have this shepherd and he is out with his flock and he sees his reflection in the water and he's overcome with a desire to sin and he wants to cut off his hair which is the thing that's inspiring him to sin. So what do you do if you want to cut off your hair? Get some scissors and you cut them off. The most convoluted way to get a haircut is to accept upon yourself a vow of a Nazir and that way 30 days later you'll cut the hair alongside the sacrifice that you bring at the conclusion of your Nazir period. So why does he go through this whole circuitous rigmarole of becoming a Nazir, which will eventually will mandate you cut off your hair? Just cut off your hair. So the commentaries say a very powerful idea, the same idea that we're sharing over here. This Nazir has positive inspiration. He wants to overcome the Yitzhara. He wants to do a mitzvah. But inspiration dissipates. You have to seize the moment. You have to strike while the iron is hot or else you will lose that inspiration. And they point out that the Talmud tells us that he was a farmer out with the flock who saw his reflection in the spring. Commentaries explain. That means that he wasn't around civilization. He didn't have access to his clippers. And that's why he's out in the field and he knows that I'm inspired now Once I get home, I'm not going to be inspired anymore. What can I do right now? Away from clippers, away from scissors. What can I do right now that will guarantee, that will mandate, that will cut off my hair? The only thing that I can do right now is accept on myself a vow of a Nazir. The only way I could ensure that this good inspiration does not go to waste is by becoming a Nazir and therefore I will concretize my inspiration before I lose it. You're holding the inspiration. It's like holding water in your hands. You can hold it for a little bit, but it's already trickling between your fingers. And in a few minutes, your hands will be bare. Maybe you'll have a little, a little dusting of, of wetness, of liquid on your hands, but that's it. Strike while the iron is hot. First of all, is there a more fitting thought to think about? When we're having our fundraising campaign, if you are inspired to support the great work of Torch, you'll be inspired right now. In a few minutes, you'll be a little bit less inspired. And in an hour or two hours, forget about it. So stop right now. Visit givetorch.org and support the fundraiser. Every donation will be tripled. What a valuable idea in this week's Parsha podcast. Inspiration of all types, is fickle. They don't last. Well, what lasts? Deeds last. Behavior lasts. Actions matter. Inspiration? That's cheap. There's the good inspiration, and that must be exercised right away, or else it will disappear forever. Ushmar temes ha-mitzvos. You should guard the mitzvos. Don't allow it to become chametz. 
we mustn't allow our mitzvos to become leavened. What about the other kind of inspiration? Inspiration to sin. The temptation of the Satan of Amalek of Yitzharah. That inspiration also has a shelf life. It also has vulnerability. It too will disappear into the night, leaving no trace if you just wait it out. Wait until tomorrow and all will be well. And here's the cherry on top. I know throughout the years, people are very disturbed by Aaron getting off easy and not being blamed, even though he made the golden calf. Why is Aaron not guilty? Why does he get off scot-free? Of course, it's a big subject, and there's a lot of angles to it. But what does he do in our Parsha? So if you look at Rashi, Rashi says that he insists on getting the gold from the women and the children under the impression that these people are going to be resistant to parting with their jewelry. And he slow walks the whole thing. He does it all by himself to stall for time. He throws the gold into the fire, Rashi tells us, in the hopes that a useless mass will emerge. And what does he say? Chag Hashem. There is a festival for God, Machar, tomorrow. Aaron follows our prescribed protocol to a T, but it was the mixed multitude who worked to bring about the calf. And here's the bottom line. Inspiration, for good and for bad, quickly evaporates. With good, we seize it, we grab it. And with bad, we hold our fire We wait, wait till tomorrow, wait till Shabbos, wait till Moshe comes back, wait till the 70 years have really elapsed, wait it out, wait till the morning like the case of Jacob, wait three days in the case of Esther and Haman. If you wait, you will win. If you wait with a mitzvah, you will lose with a mitzvah. We jump at the opportunity. We don't allow the inspiration to go stale with a sin. We wait it out. And the desire will subside. The desire will weaken. And we could walk away triumphant. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q. What's the question of the week? Here's the question. The most shocking event in the Torah is the golden calf. Perhaps the most jarring thing that happened in the Torah is Moshe shattering the tablets at the foot of the mountain in our Parsha. And there's a teaching in the Talmud that will knock your socks off. This is found in the Jerusalem Talmud in the book of Tainus, page 23. It tells us that God was really happy that Moshe shattered the tablets. And then it gives us a very interesting description. It tells us that the length of the tablets were six tfachim, six hand lengths. And the width was three. So it's six by three. And Moshe was grabbing two tfachim, two hand breaths. And God was holding also two. And there were two in the middle. So if it's six tfachim long, God is holding two Tvachim. Moshe is holding two Tvachim. And there's two of them in the middle. 
There's a transfer happening here. God is taking the tablets and delivering them to Moshe, and we're in the middle of the transfer. God's holding two, Moshe's holding two, and there's two in the middle. And precisely then, the Jewish people do this in the golden calf. And right away, when the Jewish people do this in the golden calf, God begins to tug at the tablets. He wants to grab them out of the hands of Moshe. And Moshe wants to tug it from God. Moshe pulls it away from God. And Moshe overcomes God. And he's able to grab it. Explains the Talmud. The very last verse in the whole Torah describes the strong hand. This is, of course, in Deuteronomy chapter 34. The strong hand of Moshe. What does it mean that Moshe has a strong hand? Moshe rested the first set of tablets from God. God wanted to pull it back. You can't have it. Y'all sinned. You lost it. And Moshe insisted and prevailed. He had a strong hand and succeeded in taking it from God as if overcoming God's will. What a stunning teaching in the Talmud. And it raises, of course, all sorts of theological questions. But we haven't gotten to our A and Q quite yet. Moshe knows what's going on. He knows the Jewish people have committed a grievous sin. And he grabs the tablets and he takes it down the mountain and he sees the golden calf, chapter 32, verse 19, and he shatters the tablets at the foot of the mountain. So here's the question. Why did Moshe bring it down just to shatter them? He worked so hard to overcome God, the strong hand, extract it from God, only to break it, only to shatter it. If you feel like the nation doesn't deserve it, leave it by God. Don't take it down. If you are going to get to the scene of the crime and you're going to feel like the nation doesn't deserve it, why break it? Maybe you should just return it to God, return it to sender. How do we understand what Moshe's motivation here is? He is insisting on bringing the tablets down from heaven, but he's also insisting on destroying them, on shattering them at the foot of the mountain. And the question is, why? If you have an answer, email me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Okay, let's get to last week's question. Last week, we quoted the verse 28.3, a difficult verse for some people in the South. The verse says that Moshe must speak to all the people who are filled with wisdom. So who is conscripted to go create these vestments, these garments for Aaron? Every person who had the ability, the wisdom of their heart to do it. How did Moshe know exactly who fit that description? How did he suss out competence? How did he determine aptitude? How did he measure acuity? So, of course, the Parsha podcast audience never fails to amaze me and to amaze all of us. And we got in a whole host of answers. And in honor of today's fundraiser at givetorch.org, I'm going to give you all more than one answer. After all, I want to make sure this is worth your money. This is worth your time. So here we go. Several listeners, my friends Bruce and Shishtoff, pointed out that Moshe 
already did this once before. He was able to determine the leaders of 10, of 50, of 100, of 1,000, the judges, based upon the advice of his father-in-law Jethro. He was able to figure out who were people who were trustworthy, who were people who were competent, who were people that are not going to accept bribes. He was able to determine who are going to be his lieutenants. And he's able to find thousands of people. If you do the math, every 10 people have a leader. There's thousands and thousands of judges. So Moshe already had a knack for determining who is competent. How did he do it? So the simple answer is, of course, God helped him. And I was thinking maybe there is actually a precedent for this. All the way back to the book of Genesis, Noah is told to find all the animals, two of the non-kosher version, 14 or seven groups of two of the kosher version. How is Noah able to gather all the animals? And Rashi tells us that he tried and God helped him. He put in his effort and the Almighty made a miracle. Well, if God helped Noah find every species of every animal, God helped Moshe find exactly the people who were competent. A very powerful answer. Both competence for judges and competence for wisdom of the heart to be able to make these vestments. My friend Todd remembered that when Moshe counted the Levites, he started from 30 days. And he was able to prophetically see how many infants were in a tent without going into the tent. So along these lines, we can suggest another answer. Moshe is not a regular person. He's a prophet. And what do prophets know? What do they see? They're they're visionaries. They're seers. They know things that we don't know. They know the future. But they also know people's strengths and weaknesses. In fact, the primary job of a prophet was to reveal to every person what their unique qualifications are, what their unique mission in life is, what their specific job and task that they might have put them on this planet to accomplish was. After all, a prophet is not there to clarify Torah. Torah is not in the heavens. He cannot use his portal to heaven to determine halacha. His job was to look into the souls of people, understand what their essence is, what their strengths and weaknesses were, give them career advice, life advice, to make sure that they accomplish what the Almighty wants of them. The Talmud tells us that Rabban Gamliel, the head of the academy at Yavne, he was able to suss out who of the students internally was the same as they portray themselves externally. And he was able to reject from the academy anyone who wasn't golden both inside and outside. How did he know how people really were inside? Can't you cover that up? You can, but not from Rabbi Gamliel. The Ariza, the great Kabbalist, he was able to look at someone and read on their forehead all their deeds, all their strengths, all their weaknesses, what soul they had and where it came from previously. If the Ariza could do it, imagine what Moshe could do. 
And even in modern times, my grandfather used to say that when he was a young student, he went to visit the great Rabbi Baruch Ber Leibowitz, the Rosh Hashiva of Kamenetz. And he spent Shabbos there with the great Rabbi Baruch Ber in his yeshiva. And he told over that the students said to him and all the visitors, be careful. If you are impure, if you have had a recent seminal emission and have not gone to the mikvah, don't go and greet Rabbi Baruch Ber. Because he could see it right on top of you. He could see it on your face. This is someone, by the way, who passed away in 1939, relatively recently. And he was able to see on someone not just their physical characteristics, but their deeds, their behavior. We have no idea what Moshe was able to see. He was able to look right through you. He would see your essence. He would know exactly where your soul came from. He would know exactly the strength and weaknesses that you had. He would know exactly what you were brought here to achieve. It's really cool to have a prophet around. Of course, today, we no longer have prophets. In fact, I work for Torch, a non-profit organization, and we need your support right now at givetorch.org. Ain't that slick? Wasn't that a slick segue? Moshe's a great prophet. We work for a non-profit. That should be enough of a good reason to send you to givetorch.org. Every donation is tripled. Moshe was able to just look at people and see. He didn't have to use some sort of Myers-Briggs test. Are you a ENTG, ENTJ, whatever it is? He didn't need that. He's a prophet. He's a seer. He's a visionary. See right through you. I know exactly, just with a glance, who you are, where your soul came from, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses. Do you have the wisdom of the heart to go assemble the vestments of the high priest?